you got a Bible, let's look this morning at Mark chapter 14. As you turn there, I just want to thank you for letting me come this weekend. It's been great to be with you all. Like I said the first night, I miss college students. And um, I'm thankful that Tom Hart is at ECU and Shanae and Simon and Reagan. And I look forward to the time when we have more and more students at our church. But right now, we don't have a lot of college students. And I miss it. And so thanks for letting me come. It's been fun to be with you. And I enjoy, um, I don't know. It brings me great pleasure to see how y'all live. I love hearing you sing. I love seeing that you do things together. I love seeing you have fun. Because as you get older, what you typically realize is people get more and more cynical. And being around y'all is just so much fun. And I hope that you'll continue to take in the grace and the love of God. And as you get older, hope that you won't get cynical. Hope that you'll stay like you are and continue to want to play and have fun and sing and learn more about God's Word. So that's my hope for you. And thank you for what you do. And thank you for what God's making you. It's encouragement to people like me. Let's look at Mark 14. I'll read the first 11 verses. And this will be it. So this will be the fourth thing. Listen to this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. It's talking about Jesus. How to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are in the last day of this conference. And we are here on the first day of the week. And these two things are coming together. The end of something and the beginning of something. And we ask that that truth might be true for us today. That we might find, because of your grace, the end of our sin and the beginning of our life with Christ afresh in this brand new week. That we might live by him and for him and through him and to him. So that all glory might go to him. Jesus, Father... Spirit, take all the glory. 
Have it. Make us boast in you. We pray this. Amen. I want to start off with a question this morning, and the question is this. How long has it been since you have gazed upon something beautiful? Now, you might immediately say, oh, I don't know, just look out to our, just look out the side over here. You might say that. But I'm not talking about that kind of beauty, as beautiful as it is. I'm not talking about something that's attractive. And how long has it been since you've seen something attractive? I'm not talking about something that's sexy. I'm not talking about something that's nice, something that's cute. I'm talking about how long has it been since you have seen something that was breathtakingly beautiful? Because what I want to show you from this text is that it's only Jesus that can make you beautiful. Ladies, I know this is particularly hard for you because I can't imagine what it would be like to be a woman living in the culture that we live in. I mean, just walking to a grocery store and like seeing the racks of magazines as you go to check out, you know, it's just like this, what, 0.3 seconds until you feel shame and guilt. I mean, I just can't imagine. And I want to show you from this text that's only Jesus that can make you beautiful. Let's get into the story. Isn't it interesting how Mark writes this part of chapter 14? Did you notice how the first two verses kind of talked about people trying to kill Jesus? And then the last two verses I read, 10 and 11, talk about the plan to kill Jesus. Did you catch that? It's, it's a literary device that Mark uses. And we're going to call it, because some scholars do, it's called a Markin sandwich. Isn't that weird? And yet it's true. What Mark often does... It's he'll tell you a little bit of a story, and then he'll end with the rest of the story, and in the middle, he'll tell you something different. And it all fits together so that you see the amazing truth of it. Kind of like what we looked at in chapter 5. Remember that? Jairus comes to Jesus, then there's a story in the middle, and then Jairus at the end. Mark does this like nine times in the gospel. It's kind of cool. So we're just going to take a big old bite out of this sandwich. This chapter begins, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He literally is at the point of no return when he enters Jerusalem. He has entered Jerusalem to die. He has come to die. He really has. And what that means is that we can't, we shouldn't feel sorry for Jesus. Don't impose your view of death or dying onto Jesus. He really came to die. And it was actually a beautiful thing. It was actually something that brought him great joy, as difficult as it was. He's entered Jerusalem, and there is a plan to kill Jesus, and it's coming to a head. It's about to happen. The first two verses tell you that there are people who were there, and they were plotting. But they had to do it by stealth. You see, at this time of the the calendar year, when people were gathering for this enormous feast... Jerusalem would swell to like 250,000 people. And they were there because they were supposed to be commemorating and thinking about the power of God, the action of God, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God. And so everybody was excited. Now they didn't understand a whole lot about what God was actually doing. But there were so many people there and they were at least thinking about At least they were supposed to be thinking about what God was doing. 
And Jesus was this religious figure. He was there. He'd been teaching about God. He, he told everybody he'd come from God. And they were planning to kill him, but they knew they couldn't do anything crazy. They couldn't do anything publicly at this point. They had to try to figure out a way to kill him by stealth. They had to find a way to figure out their plan and get him by stealth. Otherwise, the crowds might go crazy. There might be this gigantic uproar. And then the chapter, the section we read, excuse me, ends in 10 and 11 where there's Judas. And Judas hears that this plot is going on. And Judas decides, well, you know what? I need to make some money. And I know that these religious leaders are ready to give money. <clears throat> They're trying to find a way to take Jesus by stealth. I'm with Jesus regularly. I can make this happen. So he goes with and meets with the chief priests and the religious leaders, and they figure out a plan on how they're going to do it. Jesus, excuse me, Judas takes the money, and then they wait for a time. And in between the bread, if you will, we get all this meat of this story. People are planning to kill Jesus, and we find Jesus at Bethany. Jesus would go to Jerusalem during the day, and usually in the evening he would retire to Bethany. It was there that he was with his disciples, and he was at this person's house named Simon. It probably was also the house of Mary and Lazarus. Jesus was there hanging with them. They were at this dinner party. As a matter of fact, it was a party held in his honor. They were there celebrating what was going on. They were there hanging out. They were there fellowshipping together. And then this woman enters. The Gospel of John tells us that it was Mary. And she enters into the room where they're having this celebration. And she begins to anoint Jesus with this costly perfume. She has this alabaster jar. And she breaks open this jar. And what she has in the jar is this perfume from pure nard. I know, it's super common today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know exactly what this, don't you? No. Um, this is like, my research said that it comes from India. More than likely, this was her inheritance. This is something that she probably received from her mother and maybe even her grandmother. She breaks into the room where Jesus and the disciples and the others are gathered together. And she breaks this jar open. And she begins to pour all of this perfume on Jesus. Well, the disciples didn't like that at all. Verse 4 and 5 tell you that they were really upset. They start thinking to themselves, what are you doing with this? Why are you pouring this out on Jesus? This is extravagant. This is super expensive. This is your inheritance. What are you doing? We could have taken this, sold it, and fed tons of poor people. I mean, think put yourself there. Doesn't that kind of make sense? You're a follower of Jesus. You're thinking about what Jesus has said. You're thinking about how he lived. And here this woman comes in unannounced. Here she comes in in the middle of this party in a strange way with his jar, breaks it open and pours this over Jesus. And you know how expensive it is? And I mean, it makes sense. What are you doing? We could have taken care of all kinds of people. 
Jerusalem is full of people that need help. They even scolded her. They derided her. They were upset. They were furious. We might have thought the same thing. It's kind of popular now to try to help the poor, isn't it? Not a bad thing. Jesus is in favor of it. But here, something different is going on. Jesus actually says in verse 6 that what she did was beautiful. Now, without you can't leave this weekend without knowing this. Following Christ demands absolute, comprehensive devotion. Following the Lord Jesus Christ, being a follower of Christ, means that He gets all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. He gets everything. And what that means is that we have to continually open up our hearts to Him, open up our minds to Him, open up our souls to Him. We have to be willing to change for the rest of our lives. Following Jesus is whole-souled, comprehensive, absolute devotion. It's everything that we are. Following Jesus means that we lose whatever identity we think that we have. And we receive the identity that He gives us. That means that our identity is not in our degree, it's not in our family name, it's not in our bank account, it's not in our sexual identity, it's not in anything other than the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus gets everything. And we have to continue to open ourselves up to all of that and change. You see, the purpose of Christianity and the purpose of the message of the gospel is not to make you a good person. It's to make you a new person. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5, earlier in the service. The purpose of Christianity is not to make you a nice person. It's not to make me a nice person. It's to make me a disciple. It's not to make me generous. It's to make me sacrificial. It's not to make me a fan of Jesus, but a real genuine follower. And we struggle with this, don't we? Our sin struggles with this all of the time. We struggle with giving up our identity, losing our identity, and receiving our identity from Jesus. We struggle with giving Him our mind and our soul and our heart and our strength. We really want to live as if we can just do that one time and then we can just kind of, you know, do whatever else we want. It's hard to commit to being willing to change and open up what we think and what we feel and let Him teach us and change us. It's hard. We struggle with it because we think God owes me. You know, we really get to the point in which we think to ourselves, well, I know I've given my life to Christ, but I wasn't expecting this to happen in my life. And because this is happening that I wasn't expecting, God owes me. 
so I can be mad, I can be upset. The other way that we struggle with this whole soul devotion is this. We really think deep, deep down that God isn't good enough. We think we can do it on our own. And yes, that means growing in grace, growing in our walk with Christ. We really think we can do this on our own. We constantly forget that God has to be working in us. We think God's not good enough. I can do this on my own. I can handle this problem on my own. I can fix this on my own. I can make my own path with my own strength and my own wisdom. I can make all my own decisions. I can do it all. God isn't good enough. I want you to understand that in this text, Mary loses everything. She loses everything. She loses her reputation. She loses her inheritance. She loses her security. She loses it all. Whole soul devotion. Giving everything that you are to Jesus. It only begins and it only flourishes with one thing. If you're here and you're struggling with whole soul devotion, giving God your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, or if you're struggling with continuing to want to change, if you're struggling with thinking that God isn't good enough or that God owes me, there's only one thing that will begin whole soul devotion and there's only one thing that will cause whole soul devotion to flourish. And it's found in verse 8. Listen. Jesus says this. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mary discerned that Jesus was going to die. The only thing that will begin whole soul devotion and, and enable it to flourish is when you take the death of Jesus into you, the significance of what it means that he died, and you take that into you and you live by his death. That's the only thing that will cause it to flourish and grow and begin. She knew that Jesus was going to die. She understood that Jesus was going to die for all of her sins. She understood that He was the Messiah. She understood that He was the Lord. She understood that He was everything. She understood that His death was more important than anything else in the world. And it is shocking when you read all these 11 verses together and start putting the pieces together. Judas was wanting to make a profit off of Jesus' death by selling him out. The religious leaders were wanting to profit off of the death of Jesus because they thought that they were going to gain power. The disciples in the story, they were confused. They were unclear about what was going on. But one thing is for sure. They were refusing to give up anything. 
the only person in this entire story who benefits from the death of Jesus at this time was Mary. Everyone else was trying to benefit off of Jesus. She knew. She knew how costly it was to anoint Jesus with this perfume. But she also knew. She also knew the love of Christ. And that his love was of infinite, infinitely greater worth to her. Do you see it? In the midst of this moment where people are plotting to kill Jesus, in the midst of this moment, when their plan is all coming together, Jesus and the world are presented properly. It's like this perfect moment. You ever have one of those perfect moments in your life? It's like this moment of clarity where everything just boom, all of a sudden begins to make sense. You know, the light bulb goes on. You feel something like in a deeper place than you ever have before. You understand a concept in a brand new way. And it's not just knowledge. It like comes into your life and you're like, whoa, this is real. It's one of those moments. Jesus and the world are presented as they really are. She saw the world and all that it could offer. She saw the world and all that it could give for what it is. And she saw Jesus for who he is. And all that he can give. And she acts accordingly. By losing everything, she found everything. And that's beautiful. Four things that you can't live without. The voice of the Father. You can't live without knowing your place. You can't live without understanding the progress of waiting. Because man, it sucks and it's hard. And you can't live without being beautiful and knowing that Jesus is the only one that makes you beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you probably more than words could ever express how amazing you are. Jesus, we want to find beauty in all kinds of other ways. We don't want to give you all of our soul. We want to take part of our identity from you and part from something else. And we don't want to admit it. But Jesus, you expect us. As a matter of fact, you demand everything. Our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength. Help us to deal with our own resistance to that. Help us to admit it, acknowledge it, and, and genuinely live as if you are our only hope in life and in death. That we belong
we've confessed that earlier. We said it together, all of us. Help us to live as if it's true and we believe it. Thank you for making us beautiful. Because often we feel ugly. <clears throat> Thank you for loving us. Strengthen us to sing your glory. Strengthen us to sing to your praises. Strengthen us to sing that it is well with our soul. In your name, amen.